may be seated. Well, I want at this time to welcome you to this gathering of Bangor Baptist Church. If you're visiting with us, uh, I want you to know that our service is a little bit different this morning. Uh, we uh, are celebrating the Reformation of God's Church, and uh, we will uh, explain a little bit about that more uh, in just a few minutes. But right now, if you're visiting with us, we do want to welcome you as our guest. At this time, our ushers are going to come. And at the end of the service, we don't expect you to put anything in the offering, but we would like a visitor welcome sheet from you. Uh, and uh, also, if you are here as a guest or a member, then we would invite you to take a prayer card if you would like us as a church to be in prayer uh, with you about some requests. And uh, you can either put those in the plate as well, or you can drop those off, uh, or, or rather you can uh, hand those to me on the way out. Also, uh, a couple more announcements for us. Coming up uh, next month is our Thanksgiving dinner, and uh, that is uh, patterned a little bit more off of the New Testament love feast. We don't call it that because that just sounds weird in 21st century, okay? People think you're doing you know, naughty things, and we don't want to get that idea. But what that simply means is, as a part of our meal, we will be partaking of the Lord's Supper and try and emphasize, uh, even in an even greater way, our community and fellowship as God's people. Uh, and so you can sign up uh, for that, so that way we have, uh, hopefully, a balance of all things we would need to truly celebrate Thanksgiving, as it were. But also then, coming up this Friday is our Reformation celebration. Many of you have signed up to help for that. And if I could have about five minutes of your time immediately after the morning service, perhaps you've not signed up but you want to help, uh, what I would like to do is kind of go through our plans for that night and uh, kind of hand out the assignments or, uh, or what, however you want to view it in terms of the help that you've uh, pledged to give, okay? And uh, we will be glad uh, for that. Again, this morning we are coming here um, to, this morning in a unique way to celebrate the Reformation of God's church. If you keep up with such things, you'll know that Halloween is now the second largest holiday in the United States, only behind Christmas. And uh, that's coming up this Friday, but it's more than just free candy day. All right? It's uh, also historically on the church calendar, Reformation Day. And back on October 31st in 1517... Uh, at least in terms of the church, and I would argue in many ways the entire world, uh, history was changed. It all came from a very unlikely source from a German monk named Martin Luther. Luther was a German uh, monk again in the Augustinian order, and uh, he doubted his own salvation a lot. He struggled with it um, throughout his entire life up to that point. And uh, he was consumed with understanding a God of holiness and how he could at all look on him a sinner. And in order to help uh, strengthen his faith, he was given schooling and given responsibilities to teach theology and to preach in the city of Wittenberg, Germany. And it was there that he came to realize that even as a monk, even one who had devoted himself to God and to his church, he was not yet a Christian. And he came to understand uh, along the biblical lines the gospel of God's grace in Christ. That people are saved from their sins, not because of what they do or their own righteousness, but because of the finished work of Christ alone. Though they don't deserve it and they don't earn it, God gives mercy to sinners. 
The unfortunate thing was, though, the church of Luther's day had obscured that clear biblical message of the gospel. In fact, one of the abuses of the church during Luther's day came in the selling of indulgences. The church said, if you commit a sin, you must do penance. Penance could be anything that the priest determined. He could say, you've committed this sin, so you need to give an extra special offering, or you need to fast for a week, or for really, really bad sins, you would have to make a pilgrimage to Rome. And in doing that, in doing that penance, uh, the, uh, the, the punishment for your sins would be nullified. Now, unfortunately, there were some people, elderly or poor or whatever, and they couldn't fulfill uh, penance, as it were. And so they came up with this idea as an indulgence uh, to take its place. The system was originally set up, again, for the elderly who couldn't do things like fasting, but it began to grow over time. And then uh, Pope Sixtus the Fourth. That's odd, isn't it? That you would be named Sixtus, but it'd be a fourth. Anyway, I think it's odd. He opened up indulgences for the living and the dead. So someone can be dead, and you can still purchase an indulgence for them. You can purchase an indulgence for your loved ones that perhaps they believe were still struggling in purgatory and not yet in hell or heaven. Well, Luther, being a good Catholic, saw that there was no biblical or historic precedent for those things, and he sought to reform the Catholic Church. He sought to say, we, we need to get back to the Bible and to what the early church fathers believed and reform ourselves. Well, things in terms of the indulgences got worse when the Pope decided he was going to finish St. Peter's Cathedral and there wasn't enough money to do it. And so he, he authorized a special indulgence, an indulgence that would clear you from all sins, past, present, and future. And he sold this all over uh, the Europe at that time, seeking to bring in money for the selling of this indulgence to rebuild St. Peter's Church. And a man by the name of John Tetzel was given the task of selling these indulgences. And like most good salesmen, Tetzel came up with slogans that were memorable enough that would get people to buy his, uh, the indulgence that he was selling. Perhaps one of his most famous was, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So you see what he was saying, right? You pay your money, and either for you or your loved ones, there's an immediate access to heaven in that way. Well, this enraged Luther because it cheapened the death of Christ. Instead of acquiring salvation because of the merit of Christ, you're acquiring salvation because of the value of a coin. And everything came to a loggerhead one day when Luther, as he was going through the village, he found the man just in open drunkenness, unashamed drunkenness. And Luther began to try and sober him up and to say that it was a sin to be drunk and it was a bad example to the little kids and all these things. And the man simply kind of shakily pulled out his indulgence. And he said, you see, Brother Luther, it's all right. It's all right. Well, Luther went back that night into his room, and he began writing furiously. And he wrote down 97, 95 points, 95 assertions or theses about current Catholic belief and practice that he desired to, to have a debate about these things, to see the church reform in these things. But the church decided they did not want to debate him. Who was he? And rather, they just wanted to excommunicate him, to say, you are a heretic and you need to go away. And much to the dismay of Luther, that is exactly what happened. He was, as it were, kicked out of the church. But 
That was just the Catholic Church. It was not the Christian Church of God. And so uh, many followed Luther in their understanding of the gospel. The gospel was recovered. The gospel, the free grace of Jesus Christ was recovered. And a split occurred in the church. And that split, probably one of the only times in history, was the best split possible. Again, it was about the gospel. Churches split over all kinds of goofy things, the color of the carpet and whether or not the pastor wears a tie and everything else. And that's ridiculous. But when it comes to the gospel, it's good to split. If someone does not understand the gospel and you do, and if you cannot reform them in their understanding, then move away from them lest your understanding and successive generations' understanding of the gospel goes away into nothingness. And this morning, if you are here and you do not belong to an Orthodox church, Greek, Russian, etc., and you don't belong to the Catholic church, then you belong to the Protestant church. That's us, in case you don't know. We're Baptists. We come from, from ultimately, from Luther. That's why we're here as Protestants, all right? And so we want to celebrate this morning this recovery of the gospel. It was most clearly seen in five central truths. If you have the back of your your bulletin, you can flip that over and you will see these five truths. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, all for the glory of God alone. And all these things have their root in, in in the biblical understanding of the gospel. Your understanding of who God is and your calling to Him is not based in Scripture plus tradition. Like the Catholic Church at that time said. Luther and so many others said, no, it's Scripture alone that is God's Word. And authoritative in our lives. Furthermore, salvation did not come by works. Rather, it came by God's grace alone, by our placing our faith alone in the one true living sacrifice, Christ alone. And all of these things are are happening not because we need to puff ourselves up in pride and say, look, I chose Christ, but rather these things, the salvation of sinners is done for the glory of God alone. And as we have been working, uh, or uh, we're working through these things over the last couple of years as I've been here, we only have one left that we have not covered. We've covered Scripture alone. We've covered for the glory of God alone. We've covered faith alone and grace alone. This morning we come to Christ alone. And that is the truth that I want us to see uh, from the Scriptures this morning. And we want to do so by looking at John chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to John Chapter 3. And as you're doing that, I want to pause and ask the Lord uh, once more for help in our endeavor. Father, we are thankful for the many men and women who suffered persecution at the hands of the church to allow us to stand here in freedom and worship you. Father, we're especially thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ that shows us how sinners can be made right with God. And we pray this morning that you would open our minds to John 3, to the work of Christ alone for our salvation. Father, we ask all this in His name and for His sake. Amen. John chapter 3. The chapter begins with a man by the name of Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, coming to Jesus uh, because he believes he's from God. Nicodemus believes that he is a prophet sent from God, but Nicodemus is not quite yet prepared to see him as the Messiah, to see him as the Savior. And he comes intending to test Jesus. To say, I I want to put it to you, Jesus, prove to me that you're the Savior. But Jesus, as he is uh, so well known for, turns the tables and he says, let's not talk about me, whether or not I'm the Savior. Let's talk about whether or not you're saved, Nicodemus. Let's talk about whether you're actually part of the people of God. 
And Jesus draws on the imagery of Ezekiel and he says that if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, it's not enough, Nicodemus, for you to be a Pharisee. It's not enough for you to love God's word. It's not enough for you to be a Jew born of the covenant people. You have to be born from above. You have to be born again. You have to have God's spirit regenerate your heart. Of course, Nicodemus was confused and Jesus rebuked him and said, how can you be the teacher of Israel? How can you be one of the, the, the premier teachers or the Billy Graham of Israel and not know this? Haven't you read the law? Haven't you read the prophets? Don't you know that the Spirit comes cleansing us by like pure water rushing over us, giving us a new heart that beats with light and faith? And he goes on to say, just like Moses, when in the wilderness, because of their sin, God sent vipers, poisonous vipers, to, to bite them and to kill them. And yet he offered salvation by putting a snake on the pole and saying, if you will trust in God and look to this snake in faith that God will heal you from the punishment, the curse of the snake, God will heal you immediately. Jesus said, so I, I as the Savior, must be lifted up on the cross. And if all men will look to me, God will forgive their sins, will give them that new heart and will allow them to come into his kingdom forever. And then John begins in John chapter 3, and some of you will have uh, in your red letter edition, it keeps going in red letters, but uh, I think for a lot of different reasons, what we have here is Jesus stopping talking, and now in verse 16 of chapter 3, John begins to give his commentary on what has just happened uh, in this interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus. And this morning, this is what we want to hear uh, and unpack and see the biblical truth of in Christ alone. The Apostle John writes this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. May He bless the reading of His Word. We want to see four things here that help us to understand that salvation is found in Christ alone. The first thing I want to see is the basis for salvation in Christ alone. The basis for salvation in Christ alone. John begins with the assertion that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The fact that anyone would experience the kind of new birth that Jesus talked to Nicodemus about, that they would be saved, it's only made possible by one thing, the love of God. John says it was the love of God that resulted in the Son being sent to be put up on the cross. It was and continues to be God's love that serves as the ultimate basis for salvation. But notice what or whom God loves. John says, God loves the world. Now, this is one of the, the marvelous things about knowing a little Greek. Okay, and I don't mean the guy who owns the restaurant on the corner with the good food. No, I mean the Greek language that this was really originally written in. Okay, um, when, I was, when I was younger, I used to think that just simply meant God loved everyone. And that was nice, and that was comforting, and that was encouraging. Um, but that's not what John's getting at here. He uses a very specific word for world that is used also throughout the entire New Testament to mean something very distinctive. In fact, what we find is that John using this word for world is that there is a heightened sense of the profound love of God in these verses. 
Later, the Apostle John would write to his letter, his first letter to the church in Ephesus, and he would say, he would tell Christians, do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. James will write, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, a Christian is to keep himself unstained from the world. That world, that word for world, cosmos, is used always in a negative sense. The world is never a good place. The world is never a good thing. It's always pictured as bad. So what's so bad about the world? I mean, we're in it, right? What's so bad about it? Didn't God create it? Yes, He did. But the New Testament Testament writers show that the world that is being talked of is not so much a physical place. What they are speaking of is the world in terms of its values, its ways of thinking, its business practices, its culture. In sum... It's what humanity has achieved. The problem is, it is what it has achieved apart from God. It's humanity steeped in sin. Thus, when the New Testament speaks about the world, it speaks about the collective totality of all of humanity in all of its depravity and sinfulness. One scholar says, The world is humanity as it is dominated by the darkness of false loves, false values, and false knowledge. Now, with that in mind, Listen again to what John says. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John is not just talking about the breadth of God's love. John is talking about the depth of God's love. He is showing us the deep, deep sinfulness that God chooses to love and bring salvation to. So when we see, when we hear that verse, God still love the world, where our minds should not immediately go to the pictures that we see from missionary presentations of, of beautiful children around the world, and our heart breaks and says, surely they've got to know the gospel. No. What our minds should go to are the Hitlers, the Bin Ladens, the Klansmen, the murdering, raping, drug dealing, hating examples of humanity, and we should fall on our knees in awe and wonder that God would love them. That God would love sinners, that God would love the world to the point that he would send his own son to die for them. Most of us will never do something so evil as to put our, think of ourselves in that class of people. And you're probably right. Nevertheless, what does the Bible say? But all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All human beings stand before God as sinners. All have refused in the sinfulness of their hearts to give God the glory, the honor, and the worship that, that He deserves and that we were created to give Him. All of us have rebelled against His rule and sought to go our own way in our own wisdom. And as a result, we deserve nothing less than an eternity of death and hell. But God loved the world. God loved sinners. God loved us. And it's that divine love that motivated him to send his own son into the world that sinners might be saved. And that brings us to the second thing that we see, and that is the means of salvation in Christ alone. The means of salvation. John says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What does it mean that God gave his only son? First of all, it means there's no one else like the son. It is God's one and only, his unique son. You see, Jesus is not just God's Son. He is God the Son, the second person of the triune Godhead. And just as John tells us in chapter 1, this Son, Jesus Christ, was God in the flesh. He was the perfect self-expression of God in human form. He was both fully God and 
fully man. It was this Son that God sent into the world. Later, the same John who wrote this, again in his first letter, would say, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this love that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is why God sent His Son into the world. That word propitiation means the satisfaction of wrath. So God loved a sinful, depraved world. Generation after generation after generation as a whole would reject God and spit in His face. And what He did was take His one and only Son. He took God, the Son, and caused, sent Him on a mission to take on flesh, to become like us in human form, never losing any of His divinity. And to offer his life as a sacrifice that would atone for the sins of humanity. That would fulfill and satisfy and absorb God's wrath. His just and righteous and holy wrath against the sins of the entire world. And so Paul can write and say that we have peace with God by the blood of the cross. God's love for the world is expressed the sending of his own son to take their place and to die for their sins. This is the great exchange. Christ's atoning death in the place of sinners. I was reading a couple weeks ago of an incident that took place during World War II. A man by the name of Captain Tony Simmerall was piloting a B-52 on a Pathfinder mission in which the radio operator would, on cue, drop a phosphorus smoke bomb down as a visual cue for the other bombers to, to line up in formation and begin their, their bombing run. And on this particular mission, Staff Sergeant Henry Irwin was the radio operator and it was his responsibility to, to uh, get out the phosphorus bomb to load it into the chute to arm it and then on command to pull the switch that would launch this thing down. And uh, it would uh, explode underneath causing a massive amount of smoke that all the other bombers could see and visually cue in and, and, partic- and uh, go for their mission. Irwin was a quiet southern man who always had a smile on his face and was said to be liked by all of his fellow crewmen. On this particular day, Irwin did everything he was supposed to, triggering the small bomb, loading it into the chute, but then there was a malfunction. The bomb went off prematurely in the tube. It shot back into the cabin, bouncing off Irwin's face, searing off his ear, and blinding his eyes. And because phosphorus burns at 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit, an intensity strong enough to burn metal like butter, the bomb lay at his feet, eating through the deck plating. And all of the rest of the crew just stood in horror knowing that what lay beneath that deck plating was the rest of the cargo of phosphorus bombs. Death was imminent. At least it would have been if Staff Sergeant Irwin had not been there. Unable to see, Irwin picked up the white hot bomb with his bare hands and began groping through the smoke to the cockpit. On the way, there was a navigator's table that was folded down. Irwin bumped into it and nearly dropped the bomb back onto the deck. And instead of dropping it, he hugged the bomb closer into his chest cage as it began to eat away at his flesh. He unattached the lock, raised the table out of his way, and continued on towards the cockpit like a smoking torch with uniform, hair, and skin all a smoking blaze. It was at this point that Captain Simmerall had to open a window to empty out the smoke, which was quickly filling the plane and causing him to lose control. He didn't know what was happening. He couldn't see Irwin as he entered the cockpit, but then he heard Irwin's familiar, steady voice. 
Pardon me, sir, he said, as he reached across the window and threw the blazing bomb out of the plane before collapsing onto the floor, saving the rest of the crew. <laughs> when we hear a story like that, we should sit back in awe at the bravery and the, the sacrifice of this man. But even with that in mind, let us sit back and consider Christ and what he did. Here is a man who has not just saved the crew of an airplane, but brings sinners. Revelation says, more than anyone can count, from every tribe, language, people, nation, from all over the world, people that deserve death. They deserve an eternity in hell. And yet Christ goes, who does not deserve death or hell or punishment of any kind. And he bravely goes to the cross and sacrifices himself on their behalf. On the cross, Christ stood in the place of all those who would ever believe in His name, taking God's burning, holy, righteous wrath upon Himself that sinners might be saved. He willingly went through the torturous agony of suffering under God's wrath and abandonment, becoming a curse for us. It was Christ's substitutionary death on the cross that was the means by which God expressed His love for us. And brought salvation to sinners like us. In doing that then, in bringing salvation to us, what we also see then is the goal of salvation in Christ alone. John does more than just tell us what happened on the cross, that it brings salvation generically. He tells us what salvation means. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. John presents two roads here. One either travels the path that leads to perishing, or one travels the path that leads to eternal life. One is deserved. The perishing of eternity in hell. A righteous punishment that we deserve for our sinfulness. But John wants us to understand that Christ secured the second road for all that would believe in them, in Him. To those that believe in Jesus, they have eternal life. What is eternal life? What difference does that make? Why is that so significant? Eternal life is life in the age to come. The scriptures teach that God has created this world that has fallen into sin and now things are moving forward to a point when God is going to judge the world and then He is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And it is a glorious picture of a world without sin, without, not stained by sin, with no chance of sin ever bringing it uh, ever coming in and tainting that world again. It is a life lived in the glorious presence of God forever and ever. The joys and the bliss of His presence. Far beyond even the joys and the bliss that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden when they walked with God in the cool of the day. That life in that age, that life untainted by suffering or sin and the glory of God, that is what eternal life is. Therefore, another way of describing eternal life is simply this. Life in God's presence. Paul describes it like this. God has granted eternal life to his people, Ephesians 2, 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Did you get that? Listen to it again. In the coming ages God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Jesus. It's like Paul is saying the, the grace and the love and the riches that God wants to pour out upon His people are so intense, they're so unmeasurable 
that what he needs, what you need to experience is, is eternal life. You need to be able to live forever because the riches of God's grace, the joys of His glory are not ever going to be exhausted and they're going to go on forever. And so if God wants to to pour out His love upon you in its fullness, then you need eternal life. You need to be able to live from this point on forever and ever. And so the blessings and the encouragements and the unmitigated joy that is ours in Christ will be poured out perfectly in heaven. Now I want you to know something, folks. It gets better than that, though. You know, just this week, I found out that uh, um, when the military calls you up for service, when they call you up for duty, and they say, you're going to go on a year-long tour, that year doesn't start until you get where they want you to get. So you may have a month, you may have two months where you're in training somewhere at some base, but guess what? That doesn't count towards that year-long bit of service. Well, in my opinion, that stinks. But what are you going to do about it, right? Well, guess what? God doesn't do that for us. He doesn't just say, get saved, and one day you're going to have eternal life. No, it doesn't work that way. God says, the moment you believe, I give you life. I give you eternal life. Listen to what Jesus says. I truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Have you believed in Christ? that you already possess eternal life. Listen to what John says. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Through the fullness and the perfection of our life in God's presence will be manifested in the new heavens and the new earth. That life has already begun now to those that have trusted in Christ. You have received not just forgiveness of sins, not just escape from the perishing, but a transformation has begun in your life that is preparing you for the glories of heaven. Eternal life is even now yours. And so then the last thing that we need to see is our response to salvation in Christ alone. What is the response that we should have to salvation in Christ alone? For God did not send His Son into the world, John says in verse 17, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Not everyone's going to be saved. We're not going to see everyone in heaven. The old saying used to be, all roads lead, lead to Rome. Well, not all roads lead to heaven. I know it's not a popular message today. You watch television programs, you watch movies, and the, the, the inherent belief is, you just be good over here with what you're doing, and you just be good over here with what you're doing, and you follow those Hindu scriptures, and, and, and you follow Muhammad, and we'll follow Jesus, and we're all going to get there one day. But John says it doesn't work that way. Jesus said it doesn't work that way. I've gotten in trouble, well, not really trouble, but... I've made some enemies recently over the past several, actually a long time now, about two years, I guess, because of something I wrote uh, on, on, my, on my website. I had gone to a very, uh, very famous, very large uh, youth event and um, uh, had a lot of cool music and a lot of good things going on. But the very first night, the man got up to give what was to be the gospel presentation. And he spoke for, for 45 minutes and was able to, to hold the teen's attention. It was a, uh, he did a very good job of speaking. He talked about the the evils of society, the sin of society, and how as, uh, we should be called out from those things and pursue a life of holiness before God. 
But what I found amazing was his lack of actually presenting the gospel. When it came to actually talking about the cross and what was accomplished on the cross, what, how God could forgive and save, there was nothing there. Here, here was the extent of what he said. He said, Jesus went to the cross and he died there in obedience to God's will. Agree with that? But then he turned the corner and he said, God calls you to die to yourself and to follow him in holiness, to follow the example of Christ. Now, who wants to follow the example of Christ? Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're saying that God's going to forgive you. How can he forgive you? Why can he forgive you? Does he just sweep your sins under the rug and say, don't worry about it, try better? Do, do you get forgiveness by dying to yourself and living a holy life? Do you, in, in the end, earn your salvation? Or what are those kids supposed to think? I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully that some thousand kids that put their hand forward or went down have heard the gospel before and God somehow used that incredible muddied and unclear, and I wouldn't even say false presentation of the gospel to cause something to click in their minds. But for all the rest, I fear they're gospel hypocrites. Because they didn't hear that there is only one way to get to Christ, and that is because He stood in your place and He took the penalty for your sins. That's how God can forgive you. And yes, because of that forgiveness now, we throw off our old life and we pursue a new life in Christ. But it's not that pursuit that gets us to heaven. It's Christ's righteousness. It's His goodness that is credited to us that gets us to heaven. And that's why the apostles could say, there is no other name given among men under heaven or in earth by which men may be saved. There's no other way to get there. And what does John say? You're not saved and you stand condemned already because you have not believed in the name of God's only Son. There are no others. There are no others. It is Christ and Christ alone. And what we need to understand, what we need to understand is that good intentions are not enough. John says default is destruction. Our default setting when it comes to salvation is not eternal life or some kind of moral neutrality. Default is perishing forever in hell. John says, whoever does not believe in Christ is condemned already. You're, you're already on your way to hell. It's not that somehow you're, you're kind of riding the fence and no one knows where you're going to be. And one day you're going to wind up in purgatory and someone's going to have to buy an indulgence and spring you out. It doesn't work that way. You're either perishing or you're alive in Christ. So this is our response. One response alone. Believe. Believe in Jesus. Believe that when John says, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life, that that is truth. That is God-ordained truth. That is God's message of salvation to us as sinners. We must believe that Christ alone is the Savior of the world. We must believe that He took the punishment we deserve for our sins. We must believe that apart from Him, we will not be right with God and be justly condemned for our sins. The truths that we have seen here are those same kinds of truths that the, that the reformers tried to fight for and to reform the church in order to recover. The great truths of the gospel. At the end of the day, it really wasn't about how to organize church or how to do ministry. It came down to one thing. How does God justify sinners? And so this morning, if you're here and you've not trusted in Him, you need to do that. Because apart from Him, there is no salvation. If you're here and you are a Christian, then we must 
rejoice. It should be a motivation to worship and to love God anymore that He would send His own Son to die for us. And we must proclaim. If we are to believe and we are to rejoice in that belief and that provision of salvation, then what else can we do but go and tell others that they too may partake and rejoice and ultimately proclaim. This morning we rejoice that it's not in us, it's not in other people, but that it is in Christ alone that salvation is found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, this morning that You would give us a renewed vision of Your Son, that You would give us a renewed understanding of the glory of the cross. That, Father, that would not just fuel our worship, but, Father, that would, that would motivate us towards a life of holiness and love of You. And, Father, I pray this morning that as mighty a work You did through those men so many years ago, that, Father, we not get hung up on worshiping them, but, Father, we get hung up on worshiping the God that they served. Father, we pray this morning that as we continue to sing Your praise and worship at Your table, Father, You would be with us. That You would encourage us because of what Christ has done for us. That, Father, You would cause us not just to know, but to feel Your love this morning. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. As we continue to worship God, let's stand and sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Thank you.